Welcome to another edition of the EcoPunks podcast. And today we're going to continue our series on aging, which I would like to just point out as an aside, is one of those facts of life, like death, that we all have to deal with right from the very beginning. Um, I'm really happy today to have uh, David returning, who you may recall from the first episode in this series. Um, but I am equally pleased to be joined by Sharita. And I, I'm going to just talk a bit about these two folks uh, before we launch right in, because I think it proves an interesting point about aging. Um, David has worked for more than 40 years as a psychologist um, and very conveniently for this podcast, dealt quite uh, deeply with the issue of aging. Um, so a lot of professional experience in that area. But of course, uh, David is more than just his professional career and um, has done things from building a log house in the woods with his own bare hands to driving race cars and, and taking up hockey uh, later in life. Sharita has an, an interestingly um, varied professional career. Uh, I always love people who have more than one thing on their plate. She spent 25 years in occupational therapy, um, also did work with geriatric populations um, in the course of that work, so has some very focused expertise in that area, but then went back to school and got a PhD in community development, which um, raises all sorts of interesting questions about uh, learning and uh, whether learning should be tied to a particular age or we should be thinking about it more broadly. Uh, Sharita then went on to have uh, a very fruitful career as a researcher, as a scholar, as uh, a teacher, an author, and um, working mostly with issues of trust in, in groups. Uh, but as is typical of so many academics, has not really ever officially <laughs> retired. Uh, keep saying that she might, but, uh, but I'm not sure we're all the way there yet. Um, so with that said, I just, what I really would like to, to um, just draw from that is I think uh, the biographies of these two very interesting guests I have today say so much about um, the connection between lifespan and funds of knowledge. Um, we can talk about experts, but I want to put that aside for a second and think instead about how a cumulative number of years means a greater number of data points, a heck of a lot of experience. And uh, that fund of knowledge is something that I think we ignore at our peril. Um, so that said, I, I would love to kick off the conversation. Um, and I the provocation I would like to start with today as we talk about the question of what actually happens to the way we think as we get older um, is the notion, is to just break open the notion of, of uh, what uh, um, professionals in psychology or philosophy like to call cognition. Um, but I think what, for our purposes today, let's call it the mind. Um, and, and, and try looking at the mind as something that is bigger than our brain, that um, it, it extends beyond uh, our rational, conscious thinking selves to include a, a whole bunch of different kinds of mental activity, whether it's muscle memory, gut feelings, those are all sort of bodily manifestations of the mind, uh, the way our mind can extend to the tools we're using, the way our mind um, is created in relationship um, by our interactions um, with other beings. Um, so with that lengthy prologue, I, I deliberately wanted to have both a male and female uh, guest today because one of the first things that came to my mind when I was thinking about this topic is, how does gender difference play into this, if at all? 
Um, and, and the reason that came to mind was I, I thought, well, if we think about minds purely as brains, it shouldn't really matter too much. But if we think about mind as something bigger than that, that our thinking perhaps isn't purely confined to our brains, but our bodies are involved with our thinking, then maybe gender does make a little bit more of a difference. Um, and I would, I would love to know if either of you had a reflection or, or something to say to that. Can I jump in for a sec, David? Please do. Um, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about gender and mind, um, I'm going to say that what happens with um, women going through perimenopause and menopause is that there, is, there are in many women subtle changes in um, memory and subtle changes in terms of attention span. Um, what happens, I think, with women is at first this is kind of um, disturbing for a woman. And then what happens is people get used to it, so they compensate. Um, I, you know, I definitely don't know exactly how they compensate, um, but the brain has a certain amount of uh, neuroplasticity. In other words, um, we can learn new things even though we get older. Um, and we can learn um, how to compensate for perhaps um, some of the sequelae of, uh, you know, our hormones going a little weird when, you know, we enter menopause. I, I mean, I think that's a, a really interesting point. Uh, you know, as you were describing menopausal changes, of course, I thought, well, of course, the flip side of that is the onset of puberty. Yes. Right, yeah, they're sort of a so, pair. Um, you know, so, and this this is going back to, um, or perhaps sending it back to David, in that you know, um, I too will struggle with the idea of mind because I can divide up a whole bunch of things. I I don't think there's one solid um, definition of mind. I think that. As human beings, it's a combination of um, synapses, neurons, hormones, uh, various chemicals, etc. So, you know, as as David has said, basically we're aging from the moment we're born, and we go through phases, and we go through, um, you know, various. Uh, stages in terms of, let's say, our memory or um, thinking or, um, you know, our emotions play into it. Um, David, are you going to help me out? <laughs> well, I actually, I have a specific question for David. Thank you, okay. Sharita, because he prompted it. So, David, as you know, there's a ton of focus on the earlier developmental stages of life. Um, and I think even people more generally are aware of a lot of the work in that area. I feel like there isn't quite the same level of public awareness around work on the latter half of life, um, on the developmental stages that happen after, let's say, 50. Um, and, you know, do, do you have a thought about... Um, why that is? What what is it? Um, is that something that you experienced in your own professional life? It's interesting that you put it that way. It makes me think of current events in American politics. Strangely enough, because um, the issue around the age of the candidates for the presidency and how confusing this is for. Um, the uh, uh, governments, because uh, there is no, there is a, a, there's a, an entry age into being able to serve as president's president, but not a terminal terminal age. 
And the reason why that I've come to understand is that when the Constitution of America was written, lifespan was something like 48 years. And so the, the Constitution creators never imagined that there would be a time when somebody was in their 70s or 80s and still contending to be um, the, um, the president. So there's that um, um, uh, uh, um, generational gain effect, I think, is a concept that has emerged to, to understand this. So that, so for example, the, it, the winner of a master's level so older people in athletics running the 100, 100 meters in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in the uh, first Masters Olympics uh, was faster than the uh, winner of the Olympics in, uh, at the turn of the century. So it seems as if, it's almost as if, if you look at it one way, that people can actually run faster now that they're older than they could before. It's a generational, generational gain, gain effect. The same is true for uh, other things like you know, playing chess and playing tennis. Is that older people now can play at a higher level of competitiveness than younger people at, it, it, in decades gone by. At the same time. Um, 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 growth and decline both are happening at, with people as they as they age, and we are only just now, well, perhaps the last fifty years, which is not that long a period of time, um, beginning to understand what the characteristics of that latter half third of life is. So, you know, people say that um, uh, um, uh, 60 is the new 30 because there is so much um, uh, growth in, the, uh, in, in, in this generational uh, gain effect that leads um, people these days at, at quite advanced ages to do what younger people weren't able to do in the, not that very long ago. Well, let's let's pick up that point. So, if being old ain't what it used to be, um, I think it, this raises some really interesting uh, questions about um, imagining uh, a different version of age. And I want to sort of hone in on the thinking piece for a second because I, that was the nominal title of of this uh, episode. Um, you mentioned you referenced in passing this idea that with the change of of age and especially as we move into the second half of life there is both growth and decline and i feel like the decline part has kind of uh, that it, we're, everyone's aware of that uh, that has been spoken about a lot that's most commonly what's referenced but i would love to hear from both of you about um areas of growth that we can identify or areas, let's say, even where the status quo might be maintained. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that I didn't mention in my initial bio was that when I asked Sharita earlier about, you know, what she likes to do for fun, what it interests her, she said, I'm, I love to learn. I'm a learner. That's everything I do. The, the, I love cooking. I love traveling. It's all, it's learning. And I thought, wow, you know, this is, we don't really think enough about um, how learning, despite the cliche about lifelong learning, truly is uh, an activity that can and should be pursued through all the life stages. We talk about, and you know, Sharita, as someone with a lot of expertise in adult education, I always thought it interesting that we have to put adult before education to demarcate it, because there's sort of an assumption that, oh, education, that's for kids. That's for young people. Whereas, you know, why? Why? What the, does learning magically stop when you hit twenty-five? Like, is are you kind of done with learning at that point? I don't think so. So, I, I would love to talk about these areas of growth and 
uh, or even just maintenance in terms of as one goes through the second part of life. Um, and please, either of you chime in on that topic if you have some thoughts. Well, perhaps we look at it from, you know, a, a traditional psychological perspective and, um, and let's, let's use the concept of intelligence, for example, what happened to intelligence. So there are people consider that there are two broad categories, if you will, of intelligence, fluid intelligence, um, the rate of new learning, the speed of processing, and crystallized intelligence, which is the accumulation of, of, of knowledge. Um, and so uh, with fluid intelligence, um, unless people work really hard at it in, in older age, much harder than they would have to uh, when they're younger, fluid intelligence declines. Sort of um, like the way that power and strength and physical strength decline unless you work like hell to keep it up exactly. there. Exactly. That's a good that's a, a, a good metaphor for the decline. Whereas crystallized intelligence remains remarkably stable. In fact, sometimes when people have um, uh, um, compromised cognitive abilities by virtue of, of various diseases that we're all too familiar with in speaking most broadly, um, people can be surprised by the things that they actually are able to remember and uh, think about that they thought that they would, you know, somebody who could remember someone with a, an Alzheimer's disease who was able to remember the color of the dress that their wife wore on the day that they first w were married. So that crystallized intelligence remains um, uh, available to them, even though they are the fluid intelligence that would allow them to access that information is becomes more complicated and it requires assistance in the same way that, you know, memory uh, for recent events, there's a significant decline in what's called episodic memory as people age. Um, so, you know, if we were, the most typical way of testing it is with a word list. We can all remember Donald Trump <laughs> parroting the words that he had to remember in the MOCA Montreal test of cognitive abilities a few years ago. Um, so people can't remember what those words are when they have a, a disordered brain um, from, from a, any one of a variety of sources, but they can recognize uh, if they're cued, they can recall the words that uh, they were supposed to remember. So if they, you know, you say, well, I want you to remember the color, the word green. And people are asked, okay, now tell me what that word was you were supposed to remember. And they can't remember it. But if you cue them with, well, it's a color, then they can retrieve the word green. So um, just examples of the distinction between fluid intelligence, which is the process of cueing to recall, and crystallized intelligence, which is kind of the, the, the synapse being there in place, but an inaccessible um, as a result of um, the, the, the struggles of, of some people as they, as they get old. And well, just, when I say that, I, I don't want to imply that um, um, that uh, you know, people as they get old lose the capacity for the lose cognitive capacity, um, because you know we think about when I started working in aging, the assumption was that if we lived long enough, we'd all end up with Alzheimer's disease. I mean, then back then, forty or fifty years ago, we didn't call it Alzheimer's disease; we called it senility, and right. people become senile. Yeah, which just means and, old. Uh, which just means old, and yet, um, uh, but um, you know, as it turns out, um, you know, if, if take people over the age of sixty, six percent of them will have a dementing illness. Six percent. So the 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 association of age with senility, which we now call dementia, 
um, is a false uh, um, comparison. That's a, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, and I would argue even if the percentage were much higher, and let's let's so let's go to let me let me interrupt. Sure. Because it does get higher. Okay. So let's say if you take a, a cadre of eighty-five-year-olds, yeah, um, then you'll find that maybe thirty percent of them will have a, a cognitive impairment right. arising from any one of a number of sources. But that's still only thirty-five percent. I mean, if you're still below fifty, if you're, if you're one of those thirty-five, then it's not only it's a significant yeah. impact. Yeah. So. And, well, but you know, at the same time, where our the, the lifespan is increasing, um, um, at least it has for the last uh, um, a few decades. Uh, yeah, the lifespan has gradually increased. People are saying that that this lifespan increase will has now stopped as a result of um, um, I think largely as a result of political and socioeconomic uh, circumstances. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's a whole other can of fish. I I, want to come back, though, to your point about these, you know, I I thought it was so interesting the way you talked about the queuing being the support that can activate, that can sort of supply uh, the whatever is, you know, if there's a mechanism that is maybe not functioning as well in terms of being able to access that information, that something as simple as just cueing a person can help them overcome that. That sounds a lot to me like disability and and the use of AIDS to um, live with disability. And I, I wonder if, and Sharita, this is kind of where I want to throw to you, because mm-hmm. the minute I thought of that, I thought, oh, well, this is where education is, is sort of an interesting case. I mean, so much of education is about um, uh, not not just learning content. I mean, I hope we're sort of beyond that at this point, but about learning how to learn, right? About acquiring cognitive tools, about finding ways um, to, to learn. And, and um, it seems to me that one way of addressing uh, whatever breakdowns you might experience as you age might be a matter of just accessing the kind of supports or tools that you need in order to be able to, to function uh, at a level closer to what you had before. And, and that strikes me also as being intrinsically social, which is something I would mm-hmm. like to come back yeah. to. But, uh, but please, Sharita, go ahead. I, 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 think, I think in some ways um, we're talking about a couple of things. Um, the first thing is, and this, what David was saying also triggered in my mind um, the idea of problem solving. Some people um, problem solve their whole lives, whether it's because of the, the, you know, the situation that they're living in or whether it's because of um, the type of work that they do. Some people look at things as a problem to try to get better at or realize um, once they they kind of look at a problem they realize ah oh, and if they have insight ah oh, okay I have this problem how can I compensate for it and one of my favorite stories is that there we had a neighbor a couple of houses down who really was in cognitive decline but she had enough of an idea that she was in cognitive decline um that every single day she went over in her mind all the questions that her community liaison would ask her so what day is it who's the prime minister um, draw a clock, uh, remember these words. So what she did was she memorized it. And every day she went over it just in case Ethel from, you know, the community support came in and asked her those questions. And she did that because she didn't want to go into the old age home. And she figured that if she failed that test, 
That was it. She was going into the old age home. And she told me about it again and again and again. I would love to have been a fly on the wall when Ethel came because I can just see Dorothy just performing, you know, like an absolute champ. Um, yet, and and David also knew this person. Um, she was definitely in cognitive decline. Um so but still sly like a fox <laughs> sly like a fox but i don't call it sly i call it problem solving yeah. and insight yeah um i make lists and i'm not as cognitively intact as i was 10 years ago i make lists yeah. i use aids yeah. um ask yeah, me bf skinner yeah bf skinner Sharita, the 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 behavioral psychologist who, you know, invented um, operant conditioning if, um, uh, and taught at Harvard when he was in his 80s, wrote a little book called Intellectual Self-Management in Old Age. And um, one of the techniques that he used to, to compensate for not being able to remember anyone's name is that when he met people, he would tell them his name first which would in this in this in the socio-political elements of our relationship building prompt of the other person to tell them their name so i would say to you oh my name's a david and that would prompt you to say oh sharita here and he would thereby be able to compensate for a a a, 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 a recognized decline in his cognitive capabilities and I, it makes me think that I wonder if, if there is a you know we talk about aging as a as a de, in a declining way or a stabilizing way or how do we optimize it? But I wonder if um, uh, one of the uh, 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 perhaps even a, a, as as of yet an unstudied element is the extent to which uh, people are self-aware of their cognitive abilities yeah. across yeah. the lifespan. Because yes. the sensitivities of people as they get old and the awareness of the sometimes truthful and sometimes um, uh, uh, misunderstood and misleading uh, um, uh, thoughts about uh, uh, cognition and aging um, uh, increases their self-awareness of cognitive abilities relative to younger people. And it reminds me of some early work that was done comparing younger and older people so and it, linking to the kind of the evolutionary element the, the personal evolution of so when you're young you need to learn different things than when you're old and so younger people need to learn the names of things that that is a hammer or this is a pair of eyeglasses or that's a glass and you can't put a glass in the microwave or you can't put a, a glass in the oven it'll crack or you can't put a accumulating the bits and pieces that require that are required in order to function effectively whereas older people are less capable of um uh, are often less capable of retaining those new bits of information but then on the other hand they don't have to because they've already learned it and so yeah. what older people are better at is under recalling the if, you, if they were to read text for example um, younger people might recall words that are used whereas younger older people will, 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 will recall patterns and concepts within the text um, materials that they were exposed to so they, older people, learn different things when exposed to the same thing as uh, younger people because of the, the need to, um, to, uh, to uh, because of the demand for learning across the lifespan. Well, let me Does put, that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. And it actually inspired my next question for both of you because um, it, the combination of hearing Sharita talk about this neighbor so desperate to avoid being warehoused with the other olds, right? And I, you know, we can obviously expand upon what that is, but it is essentially a, a form of so social isolation, right? Because the, the way in our culture 
we deal with the old is we typically stick them only with other old people, um, and I, which I think very likely has a compounding effect uh, on on how you think or what you're, you know, maybe even in a setting where you are infantilized, right? Where it's not uncommon in some kind of senior care setting to see people with very distinguished lifetimes behind them sitting around, you know, cutting and pasting like kindergartners. Um, so we know that that is kind of the status quo in our society. But what, David, what you just said made me wonder, is it possible for us to completely rethink um, what is possible? Like, if young people learn a certain way, have to learn certain tasks, are good at certain kinds of learning, um, is there a way of thinking that is the domain of the old, that is um, a, a special kind of thing that, uh, do we need to reframe what we're uh, what we imagine when we talk about what older people are doing when they think um, can we talk about that in a in terms of gains in terms of something positive something unique rather than continuously focusing on oh well here's what was lost um, is there something we can identify as being uniquely the gift of age in this area well, I think the concept that most people would, or that many would um, refer to in response to your question is the concept of wisdom, right? Because we have a, we have a, a belief that um, people become wise. So we've, we talk about wise old people, wise, wise older women. Um, Commonly known as Crohn's, yes. <laughs> to be distinguished from the disease. Right. Um, um, you know, uh, and we, we, we seldom talk about the wise teenager, um, or the even less likely to refer to the wise child. But as people have begun to unpack the concept of wisdom, and realize that um, you know wisdom may be different from what they think of. So you know, wisdom might, for, from some perspective, might be the ability to do things, procedural knowledge, how to do things, how to think about things. Another element of procedural knowledge. You think, well, that that element of wisdom is probably accumulates. Because you know you can't you need you know you'll learn to do this and you learn to do something else. Sharita learned to be a whole different, um, ha, ha, um, had a whole different professional skill set um, that she took on in the latter half of our, our, our of life. But other elements of wisdom, like um, the ability to respond to novel stimuli, in the sense of um, being open to experience. Why it turns out that um, that kind of wisdom is evident in neonates, right? So it's, it, it, I'm not sure what it's possible that we might evolve evolve a concept that um, accurately describes the um, the, um, the 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 advances in thinking that emerge as a result of age. But I don't think we have it yet. And in fact, what it what the, the evidence seems to be that, you know, this concept if wisdom is is the is the is the useful metaphor here that has enduring capabilities, then um, we'll discover that in some ways there are these things that are better when you're older, but in some ways these things might be evident that these this, these elements of wisdom might be evident at a much younger age. Is it possible that you just have more of it because you've accumulated more data points as you've aged? Like, that's what I wonder. You know, it doesn't have to be the exclusive province of the old, but it could be something that you just, uh, you have just accumulated more of. So that will be procedural knowledge, I think. Right. But if you talk about... Um, but what about 
kind of metacognition you were talking about before, right? The, the, the sort of awareness of the functioning of one's own mind. Yeah, so that might, you know, if we were to evolve, that's the question we we're trying to, to get at. Is there, a, is there a new form of cognition that emerges as a result of age? And would we call it metacognition? You know, that's a, a, you know, a good question good question to ask. And so then we would need to say, well, wh what do we mean by metacognition? And, um, and let's study it. And uh, I'm not aware of that kind of study actually happening at this point. And so if you were to ask, um, the, the, the closest I can get, if you were to ask, is there a, an, evo a, 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 an improved form of cognition that is available only to the old? I would have to say the answer seems to be at this point, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. That's it depends. the academic way of putting it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, so here's what I wonder, though, is what if, the reason we do not have a clear answer to that question is precisely what I alluded to before, that when you take your elders and you cut them off and essentially marginalize them from the larger body of society, that I think we know from prison that folks do not flourish in solitary confinement, that humans are a social species, they do best in social networks. What if we took a couple generations of our elders, reintegrated them more fully into society, um, really tapped the funds of knowledge there, put, you know, had truly multi-generational living, might we see a clearer emergence of exactly this kind of age-based, let's say, wisdom, we'll use that shorthand for now, um, that it, that it's basically being obscured currently by the societal arrangements that we, you know, are currently living with. Possibly, I, but but possibly too. My people, if you would have heard these older people into the brave new world of of social engagement, they might want to escape. <laughs> and get, I, and get you back. know, I I I think that again. There isn't just um, one answer. There isn't just one way of looking at it. Um, David mentioned previously, and it was some research, I believe, that he did, in that um, even with neonates, you see the beginnings of perhaps what we would call personality, in that some neonates um, will go towards a stimulus, and some neonates will go away from a stimulus. And and I believe, David, that that tends to uh, continue. It seems as if it does. Yeah. So you have to put in something like, you know, your personality. And then on top of that, you have to put in um, culture um, for many, um, for cultures, for instance, like the, um, the Japanese culture. Older people are revered. Um, what they say is listened to. Um, in our North American um, culture, um, older people are not revered, um, except perhaps by their families, etc. But most of the attention is towards people who are younger, not people who are older. So... Um, then if you bring in again, you know, personality, some older people will continue to look for stimulation and some won't. Some find it too much. It's overwhelming. Uh, but some people do. And, and I think that's a personality trait. Am I right, David? David is a psych obviously a psychologist yeah. who knows more about it than I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's worthwhile too, just to maybe to think about um, about uh, concepts like entropy, for example, because like you know, we 
I'm assuming that the three of us uh, have um, still retain what neuro neurologists and neuropsychologists refer to as hemispheric asymmetry. That is to say that uh, our our our, um, our we have uh, different functions in in the say on the left and the right side of the brain. And uh, what people are finding is that um, injury to one part of the brain in a, um, in a, uh, in a previously affected, well-functioning organism uh, is able to be, show plasticity. So that neuroplasticity that we, fer- we referred to earlier in our, con- in our conversation. Um, entropy, on the other hand, is an inexorable process of, let's not call it decline, let's call it devolution. <laughs> Some Shrinking. people think we evolve into a into another state of being altogether. Um, 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 but uh, so in that instance, uh, it's the socio-educational, uh, if you will, environment that um, that compensates for it. And then um, uh, um, uh, so the, 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 the mechanism for this neuroplasticity is are things like the flow of blood and the perfusion of oxygen, oxygenation of the brain. So if you have an injury to it arising either from a, a thing, something like a stroke or um, um, a, a concussion playing hockey or something or other, um, then that neuroplasticity that arises from the perfusion of um, the oxygenation of uh, the blood that allows the neuroplasticity to occur uh, is compromised. And we have an injured brain that is unable to exercise that function of neuroplasticity that the, that the um, the healthy brain is able to, to is able to to exercise. I and wonder. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, but this kind of I feel like this brings me back to uh, the point I was I was pushing earlier because, barring the kind of traumatic, um, you know, accidents or like a stroke or something, episodes like that. Um, if if our blood hungry brains are are getting a, a, a gradually lessening supply as we age, I, I feel like isn't part of that related to kind of social pressures to shut down your movement as you age. And, and I and I'm not trying to ignore very real physical limitations that start to appear as you age, but you know, David, I keep thinking about you playing hockey and how. Everybody who finds out about this is like, oh, wow, that's so crazy. You're, you know, you're out there on the rink. And, and I'm thinking, why are we reacting that way? Why, you know, why do we feel this is so extraordinary? That should actually be like, yeah, that man loves hockey. It's like great that he learned it later in life and is still playing, right? It, well, you know, Jeanette, it, 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 um, those people that say, you're crazy to play, play hockey when you're 78 years old. They may be right. <laughs> but, but your brain is not suffering from lack of movement, right? I mean, that's whereas the, the people, and I think we've all seen them, like the folks who after a certain age kind of just shut down their bodies and they, they do not really move anymore. That's got to have effects on, on the ability of their you know, yeah, people shut themselves, shut their, like, as I watch, um, say, um, uh, younger people become older yeah. in, in the sports context. Um, so someone will, you know, have a, have a, will injure themselves and will have pain. And as a result, a younger person, and as, uh, could be an older person as well, but mostly it's younger people say, people in their later middle age who uh, have pain as a result of an injury. And they, so they, they reduce their activity because they don't want to have pain. 
because they think that if they do things and it hurts, then they're not doing themselves a favor. Whereas for me, and I think for lots of those people that I know who are around my age and a similar kind of circumstance, will say to them, well, you know, when you get old enough, pain is there all the time. <laughs> and uh, so you just, you're not going to hurt yourself. In fact, the reverse is true that, uh, you know, you hurt yourself by, by not doing, mm -hmm. by not doing things. So I guess some older people, not very many because uh, of the, let's say for of my, I don't, don't want to generalize too much beyond my experience beyond general based on my you know modest experience but let's say i play hockey with 50 people two of them me and another guy are, <laughs> are, are older than 75 you know there just aren't that many people uh, doing it and so you have a point about uh, you know encouraging uh um people to um, optimize the capabilities that they have uh, as they age, both their um, physical, both their physical capabilities and their cognitive uh, capabilities. You know, I think it's, it's worthwhile to, um, to, uh, to, to encourage that. But at the same time, I think we, we, um, we, we, we don't want to impose upon older people um, a um, uh, an image of older people that extends beyond their capabilities mm -hmm. you know it's um although that would just put them kind of in the same category as everybody who's had to confront like an airbrushed photo of you know their ideal you know gender type themselves. or whatever yeah 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 so it becomes you know a, a, um another form of um another form of uh, of suppression or another form of another a strange form of ageism where we where we insist that older people you know become you know super aged yes uh, older people should be allowed to be old i agree whatever yeah, that means and, and whatever it, that... what we're talking about is let's open that range up right so that that being old can mean it's always young variety. people younger people constantly trying to open my range up <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know this kind of naturally leads me um to you know i think a related topic i talked about how i you know i thought that you could think about mind also extending to tools and and the classic example of this is this is what allows you to drive a car is that uh your proprioception sort of extends your felt sense of your surroundings extends to the body of the car. And so that's how you're able to fit into a tight parking space or, or do all the kinds of crazy things I'm sure you did while you were racing cars, David. But um, I, I can't help but wonder how technology, because you know we can, we can argue that we're already sort of cyborg cells, all of us who are glued to a phone or a computer or whatever, what role that could play in augmenting or supporting the unique cognitive possibilities of older age. Um, and it, it, can that be a factor in opening up that frontier or, you know, to go back to the stereotypes, you know, is, is, is technology kind of a no-go zone as you age? And I'm not going to make all the, I could reference all the jokes about, you know, getting your grandson to fix your computer and whatnot. But you were saying, David? Oh, so I was going to say, so it makes me think of like that, that, um, that, um, uh, that four phase, um, structure for thinking about this so you know in which there's you know prevention like what can we do to prevent ourselves from becoming um less cognitively able so and that you know um so you know um, that's one and then another is if we do suffer declines how do we rehabilitate so prevention rehabilitation and then augmentation 
how do we augment a, uh, um, a capability? Then substitution, substitution. So how do we, so I was working at one point on a, a project where we were, we were uh, trying to, uh, an, I think an instance of substitution, we were trying to, so, um, people would, um, rep older people sometimes stay home because they know that if they went outside, went to do something, they might forget what it was that they were doing. Sometimes it happens to me. I go into the basement to do something and I can't remember what the heck it was I was doing. So, but if you're out and about, so people would stay, you know, would isolate themselves because they were concerned that um, they wouldn't be able to, they would essentially get lost or forget why, why, they, why they were going where they were going. So a, in, in response to this, a, a young um, uh, engineer developed the, was developing the idea of a GPS-enabled memory-enhancing cell phone. So uh, the, this GPS-memory-enhancing cell phone uh, had essentially an app that um, would, um, you could press the button if you became disoriented and forgot where you were going or why you were there, you could press a button and it would give a list of the things that you usually did when you were wherever it was that you were. So if you were at the corner of Bathurst and Bloor and you forgot where you're supposed to go, you could press the button and it would say, well, usually when you're at the corner of Bathurst and Bloor, you're going here, there, or so that's an, a, a, a substitution using yes. technology for a cognitive decline. That sounds like the kind today. of uh, life hack that Doris would have probably loved, right? In her interviews with Ethel, that would have been very useful. Sharita, <laughs> um, I want to turn to you for a minute because I know you've done a lot of thinking about online and online communities and where David gave us these wonderful categories and the example of a kind of a, just a supportive piece of tech. I can't help but think about, for instance, the disabled community who has found virtual environments uh, really life-changing in terms mm -hmm. of um, uh, allowing them access and, and kind of extending possibilities. And I'm wondering if you can imagine something similar happening with aging or if you see obstacles to that. I mean, I, I would just love to hear your take on that. Um, again, I think it would go back to um, how much the individual enjoys uh, challenge, enjoys learning new things. Um, sometimes the stereotype of, at this point, an older person, um, you know, needing their grandchildren or whatever to, you know, fix their computer or, you know, fix their TV or something like that is true. Um, sometimes it's something that we convince ourselves that we can't do. Um, and, you know, and sometimes it, it, you know, it basically just happens. Um, the interesting thing that I've observed in terms of disability is that if you're motivated enough to try and figure out a better way or an easier way for you to do something, um, if you're motivated, let's say, like, like Dorothy, um, to not go into the old age home, um, you will embrace some kind of substitution or some kind of assist. So a lot of it, I think, is motivation. Um, I'm very, I'm, I tend to be quite comfortable um, you know, with technology, possibly even more comfortable than David at times. But that's because I put myself in a situation where I always have to learn something about it. Um, I know some people um, who are elderly who really embrace this. And I know some people who talk themselves out of it. So 
again, you're going back to um, what the person is comfortable with, what motivates them, um, whether that motivation is really strong. Um, one of the principles, and you were talking earlier about education, one of the principles of adult education is that the person wants to learn. The person is motivated in a specific thing to learn something. And that's basically adult education. Otherwise, they'll just ignore it. I mean, why do I have to do something if I don't really have to do it? Um, so, so I would say it's, you know, it's more that in, in terms of online communities and learning new things, um, one of the things that I observed when I studied online communities is the more important it is for you, uh, let's say if you are part of, uh, a cancer support group, um, the more important it is for you to communicate online with other people who have cancer because you need to learn something about yourself. It Age doesn't appear to be too much of a problem. People get online. So I really think it's it has to do with motivation, wanting to learn something. Uh, in terms of people who are older benefiting from an online um, environment, we yeah. did. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, we and this this following up on that, those comments we did. I remember we, with regard to um, people's understanding perceptions of uh, older people's willingness to adopt technologies. It makes me think of um, the. Uh, we have in Ontario something called um, Telehealth Ontario, it used to be called the North Network. And the very first continuing education event for health professionals on, on what was then called North Network and is now Telehealth Ontario, I organized. And it was um, on uh, distance medical consultation with uh, older people. And uh, the, um, we had linked together half a dozen people from across the country, actually, talking about uh, their experiences about this, with this, and uh, their expectations about how people, how older people will adapt to it. And uh, the, the assumption was, on the part of most people, that older people wouldn't like their um, online doctor. But it turned out that what we discovered was that, well, and I shouldn't overgeneralize, but more often than we expected, people actually really did like their television doctor. And so it was the assumptions of younger people uh, about the, um, uh, um, the appreciations of older people uh, that was the problem rather than older people themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it kind of it actually sort of leads me to my final question, because uh, as we come close to wrapping up here, uh, I, I can't help but take the the observation that both of you have spent time over your lifespan considering this issue of age, working with it, and, and now you're living it. And what I find so fascinating is it's it's one thing to consider a concept abstractly, intellectually, as an area of study. It's another to experience it firsthand. Um, so my question to both of you is, do you feel that you are doing age in the way that you thought you would? Um, has it, how much of a divergence are you experiencing between what your life is now and what you thought it might be as you, you know, were engaged in professionally with these topics and maybe let your thoughts wander to, oh, what's it going to be like when I hit 70 or um, is it the, is it the experience you imagined um, or is it something very different? 
I didn't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did I. Uh, most of the most of the time, even now, um, I hit up against my limitations a lot because I think in my mind, I'm probably still 30 years old. I see. I mean, there are even times when I think to myself, huh, maybe I could get a master's degree or a PhD in that. Now, that's a little breathtaking, but I see it as a possibility. You know, I injured myself um, playing hockey recently and, and came back too soon and ended up having to take more time off. And uh, my uh, hockey, my commissioner of hockey said, "David, you have to let the your physical body uh, take precedence over your twenty year old mind." <laughs> and he's absolutely right. But at the same time, Jeanette, and um, perhaps more somberly, uh, uh, recently uh, um, a dear old friend of mine died, and. Um, at a very advanced age and in our conversations as his death approached we even though both of us worked clinically with frail older people um came to the conclusion that we that our appreciation of the struggles of frail older people um as we helped them was different from the our appreciation of frailty as we experienced it and so it was almost like a different world mm -hmm. us caring for those folks and those folks actually having the experience yeah. nonetheless uh when we did the work that we did do with frail older people for the most part almost inexorably they valued it and 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 uh, and um, and we were able to give people who might otherwise have removed themselves from life, gave them you know sometimes decades of uh, of new life. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I don't think we really understood while we were doing that what their experience of this new life mm -hmm. was all about. And Shreda and I are entering into a phase <laughs> where we're going to figure it all out <laughs> for ourselves. Yeah. But fortunately, and for those listening, you, you might have twigged into the fact that Shreed and I, I'm Shreed's husband, and that we've lived together for decades and decades and decades, um, um, that, uh, that, um, uh, we our 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 frailties, if should we such as they are, and are sufficient are are insufficient to really remove us from life at this point. Our cognitive abilities to get back to the origins of our conversation today are still remain pretty strong, and we we don't have that those complications that you know well for us being in our 70s it would be like something like 22 percent of our peers have with um, you know declining cognition typically re resulting from um, neurological changes in our in that two percent of our body mass that uses 20 percent of our body's energy resources our brains <laughs> right there. Um, what do you think about that, Sharita? Um, yeah, I would I would agree. The the other thing that I I think David and I um, both do and you know both believe in is that if you don't use it you you lose it. So both of us are uh, physically active and both of us are mentally active. Um, 
and you know and i i think that's really important it it in many ways it gives you the edge um and and that's why um my friend molly and i are both um basically practicing with each other the mocha because we don't intend to go into the old age home before we're ready. So that's what we do. We quiz each other. What day is it? Who is the prime minister? Um, can you draw a clock? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. I'm dreading the day that somebody ins- says that they would like to do the mocha on <laughs> me. And uh, I'm going to tell them, you, I can't be asked to do the mocha. I helped to develop the friggin' thing. <laughs> it's like insider trading. <laughs> yes, we, you know, don't touch us. We're okay. You know, I, I think, I think, I think David and I are very lucky. I think we're privileged. Um, if we were in other circumstances where we didn't have the privilege of education, money, good careers, the ability, huh? Genetics. Genetics. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great sentiment to conclude on. Um, And it kind of comes back to this idea of, you know, how much of the experience of age is determined by our relationships, our environment, you know, class is obviously a huge factor, but just yes. I think the conditions of our everyday lives have to be huge drivers in how we experience age. And um, I I can't tell you how grateful I am that uh, you two were here today and were able to, instead of, uh, uh, to allow us, instead of talking about age as an object of study, to give us the voice, the actual voice of people who are living it. Um, and be kind of living examples of everything that is possible um, as you age. So on that note, I am going to wrap up today's episode. Um, And (laughs) again, thank my two wonderful guests, uh, Sharita and David, for joining us and sharing their humor and their wisdom with us. And we will be continuing with this series. Uh, there will be forthcoming another episode because there's there's no shortage of things to say about age and the process of aging. So thank you. You're welcome. Okay. See you later. Bye. Bye.